I'm your host, Kurt Sandig, and welcome to Paranormal Almanac. That's right, I'm your host, Kurt Sandig, and on this week's edition of Paranormal Almanac, let's take a look at one thing and one thing only, the Codex Gigas, or as it's more commonly known, the Devil's Bible. But before we get to that, let's talk about shout-outs. I want to say thank you so much to Lauren, Amber, Angie, Autumn, Carolyn, Carolyn, Chuck, Dan, Daniel, David, Dill, Edgar, Heidi, J-Mark, Jade, Jeff, Jim, Juliana, Kat, Keith, Kira, Lash, Laura, Laura, again, Laura, Ruth, Lauren, Lily, Maggie, hi Maggie, Michaela, Manning, Martin, Matt, Megan, Nanashi, Nick, Rosa, Sarah, 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 Shelly, Lauren, Todd, Jamie, and Elijah Hendrickson, Travis, Troy, and Veronica. Thank you all so much. If you want to be part of the cool group, head on over to patreon.com slash paranormalalmanac. Any bit you donate, as little as a dollar a month, goes to make this show just a little bit better and to help me make this show. So thank you guys so much. All right, with that, let's get to the busiest paranormal news I've had on an episode yet. So I hope you like this segment because it's a long one. First up, is there proof that the Tasmanian tiger is still alive? Well... It's sounding more and more like the supposedly extinct cryptid, the Tasmanian tiger, is still around. As you guys remember on an episode, a past episode obviously, not a future one, I talked about the Tasmanian tiger and how I felt that this was one of those cryptids or one of those extinct animals that is going to be found and found soon. Well, it's looking like it's going to be found and found soon even quicker than that because the photo that they have is a pretty clear photo of a Tasmanian tiger. Farmer Peter Groves shared an image from Clifton Springs in Victoria, and he said the creature seemed unafraid and stood watching him for around five minutes. He said, I guess it could just be a mangy fox, but it seemed to be bigger than a fox, and it's not shy. Looking at the photo, to me, it's a crystal clear image of a Tasmanian tiger. And if you don't know what a Tasmanian tiger is, a Look it up. It's Google. It's really easy to do. B, listen to one of the old episodes about mythical creatures or supposedly mythical creatures. Now, the Tasmanian tigers were real, but were brought to extinction supposedly in the 20th century in Australia. Now, apparently this was Mr. Grove's second sighting on the creature in a matter of weeks. He said, the picture I've got, even though it's a bit fuzzy because it was taken on my mobile, it actually shows the features of the animal quite well. So... Here's some hope that, uh, fingers crossed, the Tasmanian tiger is still alive, and it seems to be okay. I'll, I'll throw that photo up on Facebook, and yes, I know, last week I promised to throw some photos up on Facebook and Instagram, and I forgot, I admit it, those photos will be up as well, but uh, the Tasmanian tiger will be up, the uh, photo of the Tasmanian tiger will be posted on Facebook and Instagram as well. This next story is kind of an update on a seemingly, or on a, an increasingly older story. 
Tabby Star. I don't know if you guys remember it. Hopefully you do. A while ago, I talked about Tabby Star, which was a odd star way out in the distance where it looked like a Dyson Sphere was causing the, the weird dimming of the star itself. And there was a lot of science going back and forth. Is it aliens? Is it not aliens? Well, a year later, if not longer, science still doesn't know what's happening with Tabby's star. That weird Dyson sphere or alien megastructure, if you don't remember the story. Well, a new study suggests that uh, the signs for extraterrestrials has not turned up any evidence to back that theory. Such an alien civilization, capable of building a, a starlight-blocking megastructure, would possibly communicate using lasers. Going with that theory, they said, well, David Lippman, who is an undergraduate at Princeton University, says they can't find any evidence of those low-powered lasers. Ones that even our technically young civilization could conceivably manage, but they can't find any. Now, I want it noted, he's only looking for lasers to disprove the extraterrestrial theory part, the Dyson Sphere theory part, of Tabby's star. And he says, although our result was negative, there's still a lot we learned by creating and applying this algorithm, which could be used with other stars. It speaks to how much you can do with publicly available data. Now again, Tabby's star has been a thing in the news since 2016, so it's actually older than I even thought. So it's been since 2016, and we still don't know what's causing this odd dimming. They, they know now it is not a broken up planet. They think it's not aliens, but they haven't been able to disprove it other than the no lasers part. But, but who's to say if that's actually the best way to find out if there's alien life dimming a star? So I just wanted to give you guys an update on Tabby Star because it's been a while since I talked about it. It's still in the news. People are still trying to figure out just what the hell is happening with Tabby Star. The next story is woman claims to capture Nessie on Loch Ness webcam. On Wednesday morning, Carolyn Barnett was watching the live feed when she said she spotted Nessie bobbing up and down on the famous lock. She said it popped up and down and kept doing it. It kept splashing about. It was quite a size, the size of a boat, but it was hard to tell because it was on the other side of the lock. She said she'd been to the lock a few years ago, but never saw Nessie then. I didn't know if I believed in her, but this is certainly some Christmas present and quite a surprise. I took quite a few videos, but my phone died. I don't know what it is. It really is unexplained. Now, Gary Campbell, who's the recorder of the official Loch Ness Monster Sightings Register, said initially she thought it was a boat or something similar, but the object appeared animate and then disappeared in the water before reappearing. It was dark in color and near the east shore of the loch. In 2018 and the beginning of 2019 has been pretty good for sightings of Nessie, with a total of 13 sightings and counting. And as you guys probably remember from a former Paranormal News, there was a 12-year-old girl that just caught the, quote, best picture of the Loch Ness Monster in years. There was another woman who saw Nessie right around the same time as that. It does seem like a good time to go out to the Loch Ness and spot Nessie, or do what this woman did, and click on the Loch Ness live webcam, which is all this woman did. She, she caught a glimpse of Nessie from the comfort of her own home, and you can too. I'll put the link to the live webcam on the Facebook. Up next in Paranormal News is a story that a lot of you sent to me. I saw it as well, and I said, okay, this has got to be on the next episode. So thank you to everybody who sent it to me. 
And the story is mom sees ghost of son after it triggers her home's security camera. Her name is Jennifer Hodge, and last week she was watching TV in her bedroom with her 21-year-old daughter, Lauren. She checked her phone and saw a notification that, that said, your entryway camera saw someone. Attached to the message was an image from the camera that seemed to show a transparent, bearded male figure in what looked like pajamas. That seems kind of scary, but the really interesting thing, I don't say scary thing, but it's not really scary. The really interesting thing is that the person in the picture looked exactly like her son, Robbie, who died in 2016 at the age of 23. I will say it is a very clear image of Robbie, I guess. I mean, it looks like him, the photo that they have of him, the stock photo, I guess you'd say, that they have of him, compared to the ghost on the webcam image, really does look like him. The story goes on to say, the woman ran to the kitchen to find out what was going on, but there was no one in there and no evidence of a break-in. Since then, Jennifer hasn't seen anything strange in the house, but uh, she said, now I feel like he was letting me know he is happy in heaven. That brings me some comfort, but I still just think it's weird. I'm in awe. Why did this happen to me? I haven't seen anything since, and I had never seen a ghost before. I don't know what to believe. I'm still in a state of shock. Now, the blow-up or the clearer image of it, the figure does look transparent. It doesn't look like something that was burnt into the, uh, the webcam. Like, you know how sometimes an image gets burnt into a TV screen? This does look like a figure walking through the kitchen, but you can see the kitchen window through the face. So it's really a bizarre uh, really bizarre image and, and a really neat one. And it seemed to bring her some comfort, so, you know, I think that's a good thing. From one ghost sighting to another, this next story is Ghost Sighting, White Lady Emerges from a Tree. And this one comes to us from the Durand Eastman Park in Rochester, New York when the wind ripped a large chunk of wood from a tree. Now, it left behind a splintered, quote, spectral shape that some believe is the ghost at the center of a decades-old Rochester legend. Known as the Lady in the Lake, the 19th century white lady wanders the park area obsessively looking for the body of her daughter who was slain by a boyfriend or group of hoodlums, depending on the story you hear. Legend has it that the human white lady either killed herself in grief or died alone and heartbroken. Now, hopefully this story sounds familiar to you because I did an entire episode about the lady in white and the legend behind all of the stories. This was one of the stories that I talked about. Now, it goes on to say that the tree broke naturally in a storm and they say, look, if this is just something natural. I'm sure it's going to kind of resemble something, but it's just a natural broken tree trunk. And I got to say, it does kind of look like a lady in the white in the tree. I admit it, but... If you get zoomed in, if you get close up to it, it really doesn't. It's that whole, uh, I think this is just a great example of uh, pareidolia or whatever it's called. The image of uh, the, the thing where you see patterns in random objects. I think that's all this is. But I thought the photo was neat enough. I thought I liked the story. I liked that it was connected to the Lady in White, which I just had an episode about. So I wanted to put it in this episode as well. Okay, with that, let's actually get to what this edition is all about. The Codex Gigas. Or, again, as it's more commonly known, the Devil's Bible. If you've heard of it before, hopefully you'll learn something new in this. And if you've never heard of it, hopefully I will do this object story some justice because it's an enormous topic. And I mean that in every sense of the word. The, the first thing you need to know about this thing is this book, this Devil's Bible, is massive. 
And as its name suggests, it's the devil's Bible. All right, so let's talk about what it is first. And the first thing I needed to know was what the hell is a codex? It's called the Codex Gigas. I didn't know what that meant, so I wanted to look into that first. Well, simply put, a codex is the replacement of the scrolls before it. In around the second century, instead of making scrolls, bound pages started to emerge as the new form of collecting the written information. And it's from the Latin trunk of a tree or block of wood. It means book, basically. So codex just means book. The gradual replacement of the scroll by the codex has been called the most important advancement in bookmaking before the invention of the printing press. All right, so that takes care of codex. What does gigas mean? Well, this one is real easy. Gigas means giant. So it's right there in the title. It's a giant book. So how did it get its more common nickname? Most people refer to it as the Devil's Bible. Well, there are a couple of reasons. It's mainly known as the Devil's Bible because of an interesting and often debatable full-page portrait of the devil in the middle of the book. Smack dab, right in the center of the book, right where Bibles are usually open to, is this ginormous image of the devil, which I will tell you about in a bit. But besides that, there's also a legend behind the creation of the book itself. But let's keep with the specifics of the book for a little bit more. A little bit more backstory on the Devil's Bible itself. It was created in the 12th century in a Benedictine monastery in Bohemia, which is now part of the Czech Republic. It was written by one person, and that may not sound like a big deal, but trust me, it is, and I'll get to that as well. And like I said, it is massive. It is 36 inches long, 20 inches wide, and 22 centimeters thick, or 8.7 inches thick. It's the largest known medieval manuscript. It has 310 parchment leaves, and it's made of vellum. And the vellum is from the processed skins of 160 animals. Sadly, most probably donkeys. Now, it used to be even bigger, probably somewhere around 320 pages, with some of the pages purposefully removed, which we still to this day don't know what those pages had on them, or why they were removed, because they were physically cut from the book. And there were other pages that probably fell out during a fire. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. I know there's so much teasing about what's to come in this episode, and I apologize, but I want to do it in order. It helps to get this all in order to kind of debunk some of the crap about it. Now, the book is written in insect ink, and the calligraphy is in Latin, although it also contains Greek, Hebrew, and Slavic alphabets. It is a complete version of the Vulgate Bible, which later became the Catholic Church's official Latin translation. Also in the Devil's Bible is the Encyclopedia of St. Isidore, along with several contemporary histories, a comparative alphabet, medical texts, a calendar, and even a few spells. Now, like I already said, it also has two full-page portraits in it. The devil I mentioned, and across from it, is the kingdom of heaven. Now, some scholars believe that the picture of heaven negates the portrait of the devil, while others have noted something really bizarre. There are no people found in the kingdom of heaven portrait, which is incredibly odd. The devil in full detail on the right, to the left is the kingdom of heaven, and it's vacant. Now, the book is bound in a wooden case, ornamented with metal, and 
Here we go with my favorite fun fact. It weighs 165 pounds. Let me repeat that. This book weighs 165 pounds. It weighs more than me. And another interesting fact, and absolutely incredible fact, is that researchers have said there are no notable mistakes or omissions in it. And they said that the writing is flawless from the first page to the last. Once again, you have this ginormous book, 9.7 inch or 8.7 inches thick, 165 pounds, 36 inches long, 20 inches wide. One man wrote it with no notable mistakes or omissions in it. It's a full Bible and then some, and this guy somehow managed to write it without making any mistakes. Okay, that's the basics of the Bible. Now let's get to the good stuff. Let's start with what we think is the history. We think we know this is the history of the Bible. Like I said, the Bible was created in the 12th century Benedictine monastery in Bohemia, which again, is part of the Czech Republic. While we don't know who wrote it, there are a couple of things that recent experts have agreed upon. The National Library of Sweden did analyze the handwriting and confirmed one scribe. That's one author. He wrote the entire thing. Based on the amount of text and the details of the illuminations, it has been estimated that it took as long as 30 years to finish this book. In other words, the anonymous scribe seems to have dedicated either most of his life or at least the largest part of his life to creating the Devil's Bible. The signature found in it was misinterpreted for years. It was Hermanus Inclusus. Now, let's get to the myth and then I'll debunk that, okay? So here's the other reason it's called the Devil's Bible. Before I tell you about Hermanus Inclusus, I'll, I'll loop around to that. I have to tell you about this. The other reason it's called the Devil's Bible, that legend I was talking to you about a minute ago, well, the legend has it that the book was the effort of one monk's labor in a single night. Now this monk was caught breaking some sacred vow. Now the specific vow was destroyed or hidden by the church, so we don't know which vow this monk broke if he did, because it's a legend, but he was sentenced to a slow death. What kind of slow death? Well, he'd be walled up in a room with bricks. Just, you know, put behind a wall, brick him up, let him die slowly. So this monk is panicking, knowing that his fate is coming. He had, uh, he'd been sentenced already, and the very night before he was to be walled up, he made a deal with the other monks. He promised to create in one night a book to glorify this monastery forever. Now, he would include all human knowledge. You know, no big deal, just all human knowledge. Well, this legend goes on that around midnight, he realized he would not come close to finishing the book. And he prayed, but not to God. And you might have guessed this already. He prayed to the devil himself, to Lucifer. It goes on to say that he, that he asked Lucifer to help him finish the book in exchange for his soul. And the next morning, when the monks opened the door, they were shocked to discover the Codex Gigas. And depending on where you read the legend, the devil's portrait was painted by the devil himself, like a signature on the book. Now that's a great legend. It's got everything. It's got the devil, it's got the monks, it's got everything. But obviously nothing more, right? Well, here's that odd thing that I was talking about. The experts that looked at the book 
have said it would take in someone five years with no breaks 100% of the time to create it, or, like I said a minute ago, realistically, somewhere near 30 years to finish. And here's where the science gets cool on this book. In those 30 years, by a single scribe, the book should show aging in the writing itself. The text should have gotten larger as he aged, because remember, when he wrote this, it was the 12th century. The text should have gotten larger as he aged, and the writing shouldn't be as clean. But there are no signs of aging in the pages. There are no signs that the one single scribe, the author, aged at all from the beginning of the book to the end of the book. How is that even possible? All right, here's that debunk about that signature I promised a minute ago. So for years, they thought Hermanus Inclusus meant that he was walled up. It means he, that he was you know, going to be walled up, just like the legend said. But what it actually means is he made himself a recluse. He excused himself from the world to make this book his life's work. So Hermanus Inclusus does not prove that it was a walled up monk in one night who wrote this book. Not even remotely. It just means he devoted his life to the book. But again, it doesn't explain how he didn't seem to age from the very beginning to the very end and how there are no mistakes in the book. Scientifically impossible. It should show these things. There should be omissions. This is one man writing a book as he's doing it over 30 years. He didn't make one mistake. That is absolutely incredible to me and something I can't debunk. Now, while I don't think that it was written in one night by the devil or that the devil helped him and then the devil, you know, did a selfie drawing just to show he was him. I will say there is something bizarre about the Codex Gigas that can't be explained by science as of yet. Okay, so we know when it was written, and we know basically who wrote it. Either a monk over 30 years, or a monk and the devil in one night. But what happened to it? This started in the 12th century. How much do we know about this book through the years? Well, actually quite a bit. The monastery was destroyed sometime in the 15th century during the Hussite Revolution. The what? Well... The Hussite Revolution were fought between the Christian Hussites, or Hussites, I don't know, and then combined Catholic forces from the Holy Roman Emperor. So basically, it was the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, the Palpacy, and various European monarchs loyal to the Catholic Church, as well as some other various Hussite or Hussite factions themselves. It was a big revolution. Around that time, the Codex was taken. Now, we also know that the records in the Codex end in the year 1229. From there, it was later pledged Cicerstian's Sedlik Monastery in 1229, and then bought by the Benedictine Monastery in Brevnov. Now, from 1473 to 1593, it was kept in the library of the monastery in Brumov until it was taken to Prague in 1594, to form part of the collections of the Emperor Rudolf II. So a huge chunk of its time was all spent in one place, the Benedictine Monastery in Brevnov. Now at the end of the Thirty Years' War in 1648, the entire collection was taken as war booty by the Swedish army. And this brings us to another odd chapter in the book's life, because on Friday, May 7th, 1697, 
a fierce fire broke out at the Royal Castle in Stockholm. Now, it damaged most of the Royal Library. The Codex Gigas was so well-revered that the book itself was thrown out of the window of the Royal Library onto a walking-by bystander, injuring him. Now, I call BS on that. The book weighs 165 pounds. If it hit a bystander, it would have killed him. Supposedly, the window it was thrown out of was on the second story. So, I mean, maybe it maimed him. I guess it could have winged him on the way down, but I'm sticking that this is another tall tale about this book and would have been better if he, if it crushed some random monk walking by when it was thrown out. But, uh, you know, it's the devil's Bible. That's too creepy pasta for it. But the story goes that they threw it out the second story window of this royal library and it beamed a guy on the way down. Now, the binding was damaged by this, and it also knocked out some of those pages, the ones that I said were missing at the beginning. The experts agree that some of these pages made it to the black market, and then they're still in private collections around the world to this day. So if these people that have these missing pages would just take a high-def picture of their pages and send them to where the book is today, we might know more about what is missing from the Codex Gigas. So I implore you, if you have a page and you're listening to this podcast, create a fake email address, get yourself a VPN, send me paranormalalmanac at gmail.com. Send me the high-def photo of the page or the pages you have, and I will email them to the National Library of Sweden where the book is stored safely today. I won't tell them where it came from. I'll delete everything behind. You know, I'll just keep the photo, the image, whatever. But I really think that that kind of stuff will help us get a little bit closer in the understanding of the Codex Gigas. So if you're listening to this, please email paranormalalmanac at gmail.com with a high-definition photo of the Codex Gigas page that you have, and I will pass it along, no questions asked. Okay, before I get too far past the fire, let's pause there, because here's another odd thing about the Codex Gigas. It's known the book was in the Royal Library when the fire broke out, and we know it was there for a bit in the fire. Yet, scientific tests done on the book show no signs of smoke or fire damage to the book anywhere. Somehow, the book survived untouched by fires, further fueling the rumors that it was written and protected by the devil himself. Now again, I don't know about that, but I do think it is very odd that there is no known damage, smoke or fire damage, to this book, even though it is very clearly known it was in this fire on May 7th, 1697. All right, I kind of skipped to the end there with the whole where the book is now, National Library of Sweden and everything, but let's continue with the life of the book from there. Okay, it survives the fire. It was taken to the new Swedish Royal Library, We know the elite that visited the book because for years, people had signed and dated one of the last pages of the book, almost like a who checked out the Codex Gigas throughout the years. Now, we're talking noted scholars visited from all over the world to examine and document the book. I'll be honest, I could go into these details, but it's mainly just a list of names and the year they visited, and they all basically wrote the same thing. The Legend of the Devil and the creation of the book in one night. It's that same legend over and over. Everybody that visited it went over it. This story has really stuck strong to this book. 
And this goes on through the 17th and 18th century. People handling the codex all seemingly leaved it open to the middle of the portrait of the devil. And who could say, you know, who could blame them, really? It is a odd portrait of the devil. I'll get to that more in a minute. But because of this, because it was always left open to those two pages, the kingdom of heaven and the devil, sadly, those pages are damaged. It damaged the vellum itself. The UV light actually tans or darkens these pages more than any other pages in the codex. Here's a debunk. A lot of the websites you go to about the Codex Gigas say that these pages are darker because the image of the devil was burnt into them. The fire of the devil himself darkened these pages. That's not true. Scientifically, we can prove these pages are darker only because they were left open for longer. If they would have chosen any other page, left it open for 400 years, those pages would be darker. So sorry, everybody. That part of the story is debunked. Okay, for the most part, the Codex has remained in Sweden, in Stockholm, ever since. Except for, in September 2007, the Codex returned to Prague on loan for nearly a year on display at the Czech National Library. Thousands upon thousands of people lined up to see it there. Alright, so that accounts for the Devil's Bible through the centuries. Now let's take a closer look at what's in it. Besides the basics, besides the Latin Bible, there are spells or conjurations in it. The Devil's Bible is an encyclopedia for teaching medicine and magic. There are two spells with specific instructions on how to identify and catch a thief. And scary enough, there is also a how-to for exercising demons or evils from people and objects. That's right, the Devil's Bible contains instructions for exorcisms written in the 12th century. Okay, that first conjuration is against sudden illness, often seen when a person is possessed. And in it, evil is addressed in the magic words. I don't know if I should say them, but I'm gonna say them. Putan, Pupuran, Doranx, Somagis, Mitan, Ardan, Lardan, Asan, and Katulan, with accompanying signs of the cross. Now there's a good chance I totally butchered the pronunciations of those, so I doubt I just conjured something. But, if I did conjure something for you, I apologize. Now, the next two conjurations are against feverish states. One of them apostrophizes the seven evil sisters of Satan. So, there's something I didn't know. Apparently, Satan has seven evil sisters, which I guess the evil part should be, you know, not a surprise. But I didn't realize he had seven sisters. They are all to be expelled from a, quote, servant of God, through the invocation of various events in the life of Christ, as well as the angels, the Holy Virgin, John the Baptist, the evangelists, the apostles, the prophets, and various saints. So basically, it's a how-to to exercise someone. All right, in the second formula, the evil one, bloodthirsty Dino, who has 150 talons, is adjured and commanded not to harm his victim, but to, quote, sleep like a yearling lamb. Two of the magic spells concern theft. The type is known from both the Jewish and Christian magic. One prescribes how to catch a thief with the aid of a median, a virgin unblemished youth. 
His nails are to be anointed with 13 drops of oil, and then he will basically espy, he will spot the thief in the glistening oil. He'll see the thief. The other one tells us that to see in a dream, quote, the theft which was happened already, one must hold a letter in one's left hand, invoke God by his holy name, as well as the archangels, and conjure the evil spirits to go home and sleep. That seems weird to me. All of that seems weird to me. That's how you catch a thief? Then there's the exorcisms, which ties in with that uh, full-size portrait of the devil. Now, portraits of the devil were common during the Middle Ages, but this portrait is quite unique. Here, the devil is portrayed alone on the page. The image is very big, 19 inches tall. The devil is crouching and facing forward. He's naked apart from an ermine loincloth. Now, ermine is worn as a sign of royalty, which is very odd to do for the devil. And it's also believed that the devil wears ermine in this image to demonstrate that he is the prince of darkness. There are shadow paintings on, on either side of the devil's portrait, as well as not seen anywhere else in the codex. Now, the devil's not shown in hell, though, which is very odd, especially for the time it was drawn. He's shown larger than almost anything else in the Bible, the pose, the prominence, and when the book is closed, the devil is actually up against or in the empty kingdom of heaven on the opposing page, which, again, is a very odd thing to do for a monk or anyone religious when they were drawing this. Like I said, it is a very striking image and very different than any other images of the devil from that time. So here's my question though. We've got a devil's Bible, supposedly written by the devil himself. Why would they put exorcisms of demons in it? It just doesn't make any sense. I could see if the spells were how to summon the devil or summon demons and how to do bad things but not exercise it. That just doesn't add up for me. And surprisingly, I couldn't find a lot of people that backed up my little quote right there, my little realization of this Bible. Most people think that the exorcisms are proof that the devil had his hand in making this Bible, and I don't understand why that would be. You wouldn't want to exercise a demon, and, you know, no demon would tell you how to exercise another demon. It doesn't help the devil to exercise demons. I just don't get that part. You know, a good takeaway from this, though, is that you don't have to be religious to respect the life's work of the monk who wrote it. At that time, and even now, it is truly a marvel. It is ginormous. I can't... It's so hard to imagine until you look at it and see that two men have to carry this book out and open it up. It is huge. One man wrote it, scientifically speaking, impossibly perfect. From beginning to end, he didn't age while he wrote it as far as they can see in the handwriting. It's shocking. It is bizarre to look at. It's a really beautiful book. I can't imagine devoting my life to writing one book, let alone this ginormous book with all of the calligraphy and all the illuminations and those giant and the giant drawings and everything. I don't believe the devil wrote it. And I don't believe the devil's pact made it so one monk could write it overnight. But like I said, it's a great, creepy, fun story. I see why it's survived year after year. And they can show you throughout the centuries, everybody talking about it, that exact same story, 
It hasn't changed since it was written, so that's impressive alone. There's an oral history attached to this book that has lasted since the 12th century that doesn't seem to have changed. That in itself is amazing. And like I said, the book is written beautifully by one man. It doesn't seem as bizarre to me as the Voynich Manuscript. And if you don't know what that is, you really need to listen to the previous episodes about that because the Voynich Manuscript took even longer for people to decipher. I mean, this book didn't need to be deciphered. We knew the languages. They're still languages. Even though Latin's a dead language, he still knew it. But the Voynich Manuscript has way more drawings and a lot more puzzlement behind it, but it doesn't have the devil. Now, I will say, I'm going to uh, post a, a link where the entire book can be seen. And I took a lot of the stuff when I was researching this, I took a lot of the stuff at its word from the websites. I found a lot of corroborating websites because obviously I don't speak Latin or Hebrew or any of the other languages that are written in there. So it's not like I can translate the Bible myself, but these people have done the work for us. Science have done the work for us again and again in regards to this book. So this entire book can be seen at this link that I'll throw up on the Facebook. I really think you guys need to see it. Uh, obviously, uh, the first image I'm going to post is of the devil and maybe the kingdom of heaven, but definitely the devil because that's the most striking thing. It's caught people's eyes and people have devoted their life to researching it for centuries. So hopefully you guys who knew about the Codex Gigas still learned a little something. And if you didn't know about it, hopefully you found this entertaining or interesting because researching this one was really interesting for me. I didn't go in thinking it was the devil's Bible, like the devil wrote it, and I didn't leave thinking any different, but some of the scientific evidence is really puzzling, and I don't understand it. What do you guys think? Do you think one monk wrote it in one night with the help of the devil? If not, how do you explain the no aging of the handwriting throughout the years? In the 30 years it took, we know it was one man how do you explain that? Well, thank you guys for listening. I really hope you liked this episode. Oh, once again, I'm your host, Kurt Sandig, and this has been another edition of Paranormal Almanac.